Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I am a writer and film critic. And today I'm going to be talking to Jonathan Melville, who is the author of a book which was one of my favourite... Sorry, uh, author of a book about a film that was one of my favourite films as I was growing up. It was kind of one of those films that a lot of people, I think, maybe keep as a little bit of a dirty secret. You know that uh, phrase that is sometimes used, guilty pleasure... Uh, The film is Highlander. The book is called A Kind of Magic, Making the Original Highlander. And it is a making of book which goes into great depth and great detail about the making of what became a kind of cult classic starring Christoph Lambert, Sean Connery and Clancy Brown as the Kurgan. So uh, it's a really great read and our conversation goes into a a lot of it. If you enjoyed the episode, please remember to tweet uh, to like to subscribe if you could re- leave a review that would be really good or if you could leave a rating especially if it's a good one that would be really good also you can also if you wish follow me on twitter at dr john t-d-r-j-o-n-t-y but before you do any of that enjoy the conversation <laughs> saw it when I went to university so I was um I would have been what probably 18 maybe 19 in 1994 
well, it would have been 18 then in 1994. So, yeah, um, went to uh, here in Edinburgh, we've got a cinema called the Cameo, mm-hmm. which is a very old cinema, but they had lots of um, double bills um, late night, I guess, mainly for students, which I was at the time. And um, I saw a double bill with The Crow. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you, you mentioned this in the book as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of a perfect double bill as well. Totally. Yeah. Whoever programmed that did, did an amazing job because uh, The Crow was brand new. That was just, or recent anyway, very recent that, that year. So, uh, so obviously this was maybe just a way to get it seen by a few more people and uh, yeah, introduce people to something that at that point was what, eight years old, I guess it was. Yeah. My math is not great, but that's a pretty easy one. Yeah, eight, eight years old. Eight years old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it was just hard to believe it was every, you know, new or eight years old, just because just we're, we're so far away from it now. But yeah, it wasn't that old at that time. But I think it felt a bit older. I mean, I can't remember. I was going to say, did it feel like did it feel like the 80s? Did you sort of feel a sort of retro feel to it when you watched it? Or I think did you... so. I mean, I think I remember the style and I remember the just that vision that, that Russell Mulcahy, the director, had and just the look of it. And I remember the transitions. I remember that first one in particular when it goes from the uh, the parking lot up into the to Scotland. And that, that mm. even now, even watching that now, is it's impressive. But yeah, so that definitely struck me. But I think at the time it did feel, even then, a few years old because I guess special effects had, had moved on a little bit since... Uh, since the mid eighties, yeah. So, but but it obviously struck a chord with me because here we are talking about a book, which at the time <laughs> I'd never I'd never thought I'd be writing books, even though I was doing publishing. Admittedly, the course was publishing a degree, but right. that was more publishing other people's books than writing my own. What, what? So, what was the impetus to to get you to to write about Highlander? What was the thing that you thought I, I've got to write a book here? Well, I'd written a book previously on Tremors, on the Tremors. Right. Uh, which originally I wrote an article for SFX magazine here in the UK, a sort of sci-fi fantasy magazine, about the 21st anniversary of Tremors. And I think that was around about 2011 or so. Uh, and I'd interviewed one of the, the writers and co-creators. So that led to me writing a book in 2015. And so when that came to an end, I was kind of exhausted, really, because you know, creating anything can be tiring. And uh, writing a book, for, well, this one, it took me kind of, three three-ish years maybe uh so that was lots of late nights and uh and early mornings and um you know lots of interviews i did about 55 interviews for the tremors one all of it through skype because everyone was in america but um yeah so but i think by the end of it i was just like that's that's me i'm gonna just take a break now and that would have been 2015 when it came out and then in 2016 i i don't know i, I can't quite put my finger on what it was exactly that made me think highlander but I think it was just speaking to people, maybe my partner as well. She might have suggested it. Uh, I think we were sort of looking at films. And, and, and it's also just thinking about films. I, mean, I love films. So at that time, I was writing for the local newspaper here in Edinburgh and blogging about films and going on the radio. So I was I was doing that all the time. Um, so I suppose it was just in my world. You know, I was in that world. And so you're also looking for things that nobody else has written about. And so Highlander, Tremors, no one had written a Tremors book. Highlander, there are just certain films, I think, that, I don't know, people just don't, not so much they don't write films about them, because I ended up doing it, but they maybe just aren't the most obvious ones. And, and Tremors was a slightly more unusual one, because it's kind of a quirky, you know, this quirky kind of fun 
comedy, sci-fi, horror, romance. No one quite knows what it is. Um, and Highlander, I didn't... I don't think anyone had written about it at that point, apart from there's lots of blogs and things online and, and newspaper articles. So, um, But then round about that time, actually, I can't remember. I think I'd thought about writing it, and then I read that someone else was writing a book on all the films. And so I did think, right, that's not going to work then. You can't really, although there are multiple films and things like uh, Casablanca or, you know, horror films, maybe the Halloween films, there might be multiple books on those, certainly the big classics. I thought there's maybe only room in this world for one book on Highlander. And then, so I bought the book on Highlander, this other book on Highlander, and it, and it wasn't what I would have written. And, um, the, the chap that wrote it, John, John Mosby, who I now know, he wrote, I think his first chapter, or his chapter dedicated to the first film was maybe something like 19 pages or oh, right. 20 pages or something like that. Uh, and although there was a lot of detail in that, I thought, oh, there's, surely there's more uh, to this world. So anyway, I started looking into it. I'll try and get to the point quickly. But I started, uh, started looking into it. I started emailing the likes of Christopher Lambert and Clancy Brown and Sean Connery, and this would have been 2016, just the start of 2016. And then round about, none of them got back to me. And then in early 2016, I got an email from the Edinburgh International Film Festival saying they were going to be celebrating Highlander, and it was the 30th anniversary. And they were going to have Clancy Brown coming. He plays the Kurgan, for people, people that don't know the baddie in the film. And Clancy Brown had distanced himself quite a lot from Highlander. Um, he just didn't have a great experience with the producers back in 1985. Uh, and so the chance of getting him was incredible. And, and I live, as I say, I live in Edinburgh. I'm, I'm 20 minutes away from the cinema that we're going to be doing the event. So that really is it, to, the long answer, I think, to your question is um, the opportunity arose to interview someone who really I shouldn't have been able to interview because he probably wouldn't have responded to emails. He might have done, but I don't think he would have done to some random person in Scotland uh, and so I got to speak to him so I got maybe two maybe a 20 minute interview with him and maybe a five minute in the in the on the red carpet and um, it, spir- it sort of took off from there really brilliant I, I remember the Kurgan being one of the most terrifying parts of that film when I watched it he was there was something about him that was just I he kind of stole the film from right right out from under everyone's noses Absolutely. Yeah, he's a fantastic character and, and Clancy Brown just does such an amazing job bringing him to life and uh, he manages to go from, I mean, I think the character that ends up on the screen is, as he says, a little bit more of a, I think it was him that said it, more of a cackling villain or it might have been the writer of the original script, Gregory Wyden, that might have said that, but that, there's a little bit of that. He's a little bit heightened, isn't he? I think that's that's a good word for it, but he does it well. He was He was kind of told to do that, but he does it very well. The, the thing about Tremors and Highlander is that, that it feels like they are, although they're generically, they're not identical by any means, they sort of have that similar thing where a lot of people have a lot of affection for them. Cultish classics, if you like. Yeah, that's it. And that's, I, I suppose that must be something. I mean, it's, I've never really sat down and I kind of analysed my tastes in film or... I don't know, just my 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 view on the world. I don't really sit down and analyse it that much. But and the films that I enjoy, I enjoy lots of different films. I mean, the Third Man is kind of my favourite film, mm. um, which is about as far as way as far away from Tremors as you can get. But I guess if it's well written and it's well directed and well acted, or, or 
at least one or two, you know, two of those things, <laughs> then it's it's something that uh, you know it's it's going to have a fan base, and and I'm going to probably enjoy it. So yeah, uh, and and yeah, and I think there's just this. Strangely enough, those two films, Tremors and Highlander, are both kind of difficult to categorize as well. Mm. Um, I mentioned there earlier about Tremors being kind of this sci-fi comedy western romance, whereas Highlander is kind of a action fantasy romance period drama. Yeah, kind of with humor, uh, and it's sort of difficult to categorize. So there's clearly something, and I guess as someone, if you're writing about something. It's it's sort of nice to be able to have different aspects you can focus on, and if it was just a melodrama or just a a, a, a comedy or, or a romance, that's fine. But maybe it's harder to to uh, as I say, kind of uh, you know, interrogate that or, or or come at it from different angles if you're just focusing on one one tone. Um, so yeah, there's something there that appeals to me. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to stop the podcast. I'm going to have to edit this podcast and go back to the bit where you were talking about discovering another book about Highlander. And then I'll I'll just drop myself in saying there can only be one when you were talking about the books. I, I, it's it's going to niggle me for the rest of the podcast that I didn't say that straight away. <laughs> I, missed, I missed a golden opportunity there. Well, uh, me too. I should have said it as well. <laughs> Don't worry. It'll, it'll work in post. Just It won't sound odd at all. Uh, okay. <laughs> Yeah. Um, how long did it take you to write this book? Because you, you talked about um, Tremors being like three years. And this, whilst I was reading this, I was thinking, God, my God, you've interviewed so many people for this. There's so much detail in here, right down mm. to extras and, and people. Uh, you, it's a brilliant breadth. You know, you, ha- you, yeah, you talked to Clancy Brown and you talked to Christo- Christopher Lambert. And then you also talked to, you know, the guys who were getting dressed up and running around pretending to be Highlanders and, and growing beards and whatnot. So it was a real, so how long did it take in, in total? I guess it must've taken about four years. Wow. Which, yeah, is quite a long time, isn't it? When you think about it. Uh, Cause yeah, I started in 2016 with that first interview with Clancy and then, I mean, but it wasn't a constant, I wasn't doing that every night. So I think the interviews certainly took a long time to get. So once you've got, let's say Clancy, um, you're then trying to get um, Christopher, Christopher Lambert. And he took a while. Uh, and actually, you know, I, I was meant to interview in a, a, about a week after Clancy, funnily enough, because they were doing another special event in London, as well as the one in Edinburgh. But when I got down there, his mum wasn't well, uh, Christopher's mum. So that just didn't happen. So I'd flown down and flew back up that night with nothing. And it took another year, maybe, to get him. And the same with Russell Mulcahy. Spoke to him very briefly. He was in a taxi in South Africa, I think, uh, filming, and spoke to him in the back of. He, he yeah, spoke to him in the taxi, and he said, oh, "Yeah, phone me, email me." He is a very busy man, and it took another maybe year, eighteen months, to speak to him. So all these things were just taking a while. So I suppose probably the first couple of years were just trying to get interviews together, and then probably another, I don't know, maybe a year, uh, maybe a year writing and editing. But yeah, so it wasn't every night of my life, thankfully. But uh, I guess like anything, once you get closer to publication date, uh, it all ramps up a bit, and you're just spending more time on it and 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 uh, just trying to make it the best it can be. And but but it was really important to me to get more as many interviews, um, get as many interviews as I could, because I just think if you're going to do it, this could be the only. I mean, I've said there's another book on on Highlander, but but mine was very different. This is sort of three hundred and something pages. Might be the last book on Highlander. Who knows? Great if someone else comes along and has a go. But um, everybody's getting older. 
Or are they? <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, well, I mean, uh, yeah. And uh, so, yeah. So I think if you're going to do it, do your best, of course. And I'm sure, every, of course, everybody does when they do these things. Sure. But if you have a bit more time, uh, for me, it was just obvious to spend that trying to track down people like the guys from Queen who did take I, I, probably about two years to get uh, Roger Taylor and Brian May because uh, I started emailing them and uh, they were always touring the world and uh, and I just couldn't get them. Their agent was very nice, but just couldn't get them. And then the pandemic happened and they were available. So so it did happen in the end. So Silver, silver linings to pandemics there. <laughs> bizarrely, yeah. Yeah. That uh, I mean that chapter was brilliant. I loved the uh, the story of Queen because I mean I remember listening to Queen when they were doing their sort of Dungeons and Dragons albums and you know the the sort of more fantasy based stuff. Mm. And then and then kind of magic was always felt like well you you chronicle it in your book. It was a sort of post Live Aid new direction for them really. And and they I remember reading somewhere Russell uh, Mulcahy talking about Freddie Mercury being a really uh, powerful sort of like insisting that he, that this would be a great movie and, and all the rest of it. He was really enthusiastic about the project. Yeah. I mean, there was a little bit of confusion or maybe not confusion, but, but like anything, this sort of thing, you know, there's, there's, there are different stories going around about who has been approached first and mm-hmm. was it Queen or was it someone else? And, and so that was another reason that I really wanted to speak to them was to try and, I mean, I'm a fan. I love Queen. I've loved them since I was, uh, since it was, since Kind of Magic came out anyway. I remember that being on and, uh, you know, just going into shops and things when it came out. I mean, I'm not a huge Queen fan and I don't actually own all their albums or anything, right. but, 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 you know, it's Queen. So you've got to, yeah, the chance to speak to them would be ama- would, would would be amazing. So yeah, so I just wanted to try and find out the facts really. So, but uh, yeah, I got a chance to speak to them. And as you say, Freddie was very keen on the film. He was a, he was he saw potential in it and uh, agreed to be be part of it. And and they all got really involved in it and wrote a song and uh, and just made it something really special. It was funny. Was it John Deacon who who wrote the song that's on the radio? And he's like, "Oh bloody hell!" <laughs> no one listens to the song on the radio. That's right. There's a song in the one on the radio and in the. Uh, the jukebox, I think it was in the pub in the in the New York bar. Yeah, just very lucky to get to speak to those those guys and and I think and I just wanted the fans. The other thing I had at the back of my mind, I suppose, as well, was I didn't want I wanted fans of Highlander, and also fans of Queen, to try and to to learn something new. That was another thing I, I obviously well I say obviously, but I definitely wanted because why do something like this if you're just going to rehash what's on the internet? There's a lot. If you, I think if you're a Highlander fan and you don't want to spend the money on this book, yes, you could go online actually and you have a Google and you find out lots of different things. But what I wanted to do, you mentioned speaking to extras. I wanted to do that. I wanted to go to people who were on the set that you've never heard from before and you probably will never hear from again uh, and find out what it was like being the stand-in for Sean Connery, what it was like getting fish for the scene where fish fall out of Christopher Lambert's kilt. Uh, yeah, just a slightly maybe unusual person to interview, but just a nice little story that adds to the, the magic, I suppose. 
you get a real sense of like I think even if you if you weren't a fan of Highlander, although I mean obviously that fans of Highlander are going to be your main audience, but it's just fascinating to me to read about people having sort of just how a film is made. You know, just all the different people involved and all the different. You know, I mean, I've just read The Devil's Candy, who. Actually, it's pro- probably going to be in an episode that comes out before this one. And Bonfire of Vanities is not, you know, it's no by no means a great film. Like, far from it. And yet it's still fascinating how, how that film got made, you know. And so I think... I've got that book on the shelf actually ready to, to read at some point when I get round to it. My episode will be the the inciting incidents that gets you that gets you into it. Uh, well, I, I, I just love collecting these sorts of books. I mean, that's another reason you, you asked to kind of what, why maybe did I want to write this book it's also just because I'm fascinated by filmmaking and uh, and, and I yeah I'm kind of glad you said you don't have to be a Highlander fan really because uh, I think if you're just interested in filmmaking or maybe I don't know British culture that's maybe going a bit far but certainly what was happening in the industry I mean there's a whole there's there's a lot in there about Thorn EMI which is a, a production studio that doesn't exist now but I there is a again there's a book but only came out when I was writing mine. There's a book dedicated to Thorn EMI now, uh, but there wasn't before that. And and so, and even if people read this book all about a film studio that now doesn't exist, I think I've got some things in my book that aren't in the other books. I spoke to people who worked there. Uh, and that's touching on, yeah, what was happening in the industry at the time. So I do think, I, I'm always, there's a funny thing about what you call yourself, what I call myself when it comes to what I do. Uh, and people sometimes say that and even just filling in forms, sometimes you've got to write, what what, what are you? You know, are you a, a journalist or a, an author or whatever? And I guess I, I sort of, I suppose I am an author. I mean, I've written a couple of books, but I also wonder sometimes, um, you know, a lot of things I read, they have interviews with film historians and I, and, and I sort of think, am I a film? And it's not just to make myself sound grand or anything, but I think, well, I'm writing about film history. Does that do I count as a film historian? Uh, I don't actually know the answer to that. I think I sort of am, but but that's kind of what I enjoy doing is just delving into history, going into the archives. I went down to the BFI and um, the the uh, BBFC who do all the film classifications. I'm sure people who listen to this will know all this, but um, and went into their archives and, and sort of dug things out that people probably haven't since well ever really. You know things like what people said about the when when the when Highlander came out on video uh, VHS in the UK. People, one, I think one person wrote in to complain that it should be a video nasty. <laughs> uh, and, and so, you know, who's going to know? You just wouldn't know that unless you went into the archive because it's not online, I don't think. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I might be, I, I like to think it's sort of uh, excavating, <laughs> to put maybe too grand a term on it, excavating the, the, the history of British cinema in a way. But, uh, but I think that's, the, that's, that's part of the, the fun and hopefully people, yeah, you don't have to be a Highlander fan to read this book. And if you are, you'll hopefully learn something else about the industry and just some of the people that worked in it and what was going on around about it. You know, because I, I, I also had to kind of tone that stuff down. Right. Because I did worry that it was getting too boring. And I stopped myself a couple of times uh, because I thought there's only so much people want to read about the goings on in the boardroom of a, of a studio in 1984 or five and I'm sure lots of people I would I would sort of like to read a bit more if I was reading someone else's book but at the same time you kind of have to keep the story moving along don't you and and uh, so that was a that was a difficult one mm. and I, a lot of it is self-editing and thinking do people want to know this is this too boring have I just told people too much about the canteen that thorny am I <laughs> <laughs> um so 
Yeah, it's a juggling act, but it is sort of telling a story, I think. It's sort of trying to have a narrative running through the, the book and, and have almost like mini cliffhangers, isn't it? And and uh, and hopefully keep people reading. But uh, but at the same time, you're just telling the story of a... It's just a film at the end of the day. But but there's all the people around about it that, that put their heart and soul into it is fascinating. Absolutely. I, th- I, I thought that whole thing about... I, I mean, I'm always uh, interested in these films that, that they they turn up in our lives as if they're just, you know, fait accompli. They're just there, completed, made, perfect, or not so perfect, depending, and and you watch them. And then you read a book like yours and you, and you find out about how many drafts of the script there were, how many permutations, and every single point, there's an alternative universe where it could have been a different actor in a different role, or it could have been a different... Or Christophe Lambert could have jumped off a building and... and killed himself which is one of the (laughs) that's one of the best stories i thought that was hilarious (laughs) why why would you just think oh i'm not i'm gonna jump off a building in order to not have to do the stairs so that one he was on the roof of silver cup studio in new york and uh the uh the production team had set up this giant mattress basically a blow up mattress to for the stuntmen in case someone fell on it and Christopher Lambert was filming his scene climbed up the side with his sword and uh, decided to jump off I think it was at lunch it couldn't have been I thought it was lunchtime I think it was maybe just they were coming to an end in, in, in one in the morning or something and he decided to jump off and I think I can't remember now if someone shouted to him don't do it but he certainly he did it and uh, and this is that was the fascinating thing because there's there's different versions of that story uh, and that's another reason to try to, to speak to lots of different people who were there because everybody's and that because you know if I just listened to Christopher now his version of the story could be true Let's face it. I mean, maybe it is, but there are one or two other people that don't quite agree with him, and and I suppose that's the that's the thing with any kind of documenting of of again. I'm I'm sort of using these grander terms, talking about history, but something that happened in the past, or even something that happens now. If you look at one person, that that story goes down forever as that's what happened. Whereas I I'm kind of quite happy that I've now got two or three people saying, well, I think this happened. And it's up to the reader in a way to sort of piece together what actually did happen. Uh, and sometimes I'm being a little bit, I'm, I'm trying to be polite to the, <laughs> to, to one person and, and, um, and give them the benefit of the doubt because I don't want to be too harsh on them. But who are you being polite about? Um, well, I think, I think because there are different views, I, I don't feel it's quite my place to say he was wrong or that person's right. So I, I suppose it's more just that case of trying to be polite as in saying, well, okay, maybe he's right, but these other people say he's not, so what do you think? <laughs> you're kind of you're kind of winking at the reader, I suppose, or nudging them a little bit, but Dude, there's so many huge personalities on that set as well. You've got, you know, you've already got Russell Mulcahy coming out of music videos. You've got Sean Connery earning, what's it, like a a million for like six days' work or something? It's, I think it ended up like a million, million and a half. And you've got Clancy Brown turning up and he's he's quite young. He's like in his 20s, isn't he? He's got something of an attitude to, uh, to him. And like Christopher Lambert is the sort of, seems to like the, the calm sort of the, the when he's not jumping off buildings when he shouldn't be he seems like the calm nice guy that everyone has a kind word for yeah no totally like like any film set i suppose there were yeah like you say different personalities and uh and 
Clancy, I think, was at that age and, and that stage in his career where he was not earning perhaps as much as other people and um, maybe just wasn't treated as well because he was the th third lead in a, in a way, wasn't it? I suppose, yes, of course, Christoph was the lead and um, and Sean was almost a glorified cameo. But I, f I think watching it now, Clancy, of course, is, is up up there with those guys but in the, in the eyes of the, the the producers and the money men I suppose he wasn't so yeah I think he was as I mentioned in the book and or, or as Clancy says he was left to everyone else was kind of flown up I think to, to Scotland and uh, had had really great treatment and five-star hotels and Clancy had to come up in the train himself and got in at midnight and um, didn't know where to go and had to stop a policeman to ask where the local <laughs> Hostel was, so yeah. I think if that's the start of your 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 experience on a on a project, it's yeah. Where's it going to go from there? And he's very he is a he's a he's a really nice guy to speak to. Just a really smart, funny uh, guy. And I think although he he has got he's honest and that he says things about the producers. You know, he says what he thinks. I also think he, there's things he's still not said uh, because he's. Maybe he could get sued or, or whatever, but I think he's still been kind of polite in a way, and there's probably more he could say. But, but how much do you want to say? I mean, one of the I won't say who it was. It was nothing negative, but one of the people I spoke to did say they wanted to read the interview, the transcript before I published it, or, or certainly what I had written for the book based on that interview, because they didn't want the fans to be to be reading negative things about the film they love uh, and that's that is another just a, a, a sort of interesting aspect I suppose of writing about these films or, or maybe any film but but I guess now if you were writing something now about the new Bond film and it was an official book I think it would be interesting I've not read the new book on, on the new film but of course it's going to be a bit more sanitized and a bit more everybody's really close to it people could get I, I keep saying you know sued but people could get sued and they say the wrong thing uh, everybody's just been a bit careful because it's a multi-million dollar franchise whereas something that's 40 years old people are a bit more honest but the fans are still fans and fans love it and they don't necessarily want to hear some people do I, mean, I did get a complaint about my Tremors book saying that it wasn't warts and all mm. and they expected they wanted to know more about fights on set and, and things that went wrong and the, the truth of the matter is nobody told me about things that about fights on set and that's either because they didn't happen or because they were just being polite again so yeah so somebody at least one person did say look can you just run it past me because I don't want the fans to know or hear about things that you know if I've said anything that's that's negative as in this person I was interviewing please can you kind of tone it down or or take it out so I think I think with that interview there was maybe just one thing um, and it was about someone else <laughs> I'm sort of just alluding to things but it, it really wasn't anything that that, that 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 ruined your enjoyment of the film or the book uh, and it was more just maybe someone someone that did something that maybe wasn't entirely professional and but we don't need to know these things so so I suppose what I'm saying is there was nothing that I can think of that I took out I mean sometimes again and people maybe you've had other people say this but sometimes you are just being a bit cautious about certain comments made because they are they, they could be misconstrued or it's something that is I'm not saying anything really happened illegal but if something did happen that was illegal you're like oh I don't know if I should be saying that maybe I'll get into trouble but that's the same with any sort of journalism isn't it it's um you're just trying to be you're trying to be as honest as possible and put across what someone has told you but at the same time just be mindful of 
is that is that absolutely true or if you publish that is that a scandal <laughs> people are still alive responsible yeah that's that's a good word for it so but that's something I never really had to think about before I wrote these books I was doing a bit of journalism on the side but I'm not a trained journalist and so I would do sometimes interviews just about the new film that had come out uh, and again everybody was being quite cautious about what they were saying or just very positive um, so I suppose that's something I learned writing these books was just that especially with my first book which I self-published uh, I was just very very careful about not wanting to get into trouble but then as I, as I mentioned nobody really said anything that was too controversial it's a it's a tough balancing act because you always yeah. I mean I've been in interviews before where you're kind of wary that if you if you push it, you you might get a better story or the interview could stop right there. <laughs> yes. You don't want to give this just the sanitized version. You don't want to, you, you do want to go into areas that are difficult because that's, that that's a better story, but you can, you know, you can shoot yourself in the foot if you're too aggressive about that. One, one thing that I was, <laughs> I saw of, as I was reading it, I was thinking, ah, you haven't pushed too far there was, uh, when you interviewed, um, the dialogue coach of, uh, Christophe, La Christophe Lambert, when you sort of, because the, there is, <laughs> they have, they have some blood on their hands, right? Well, I, I approached that person and, um, just the response I got was they, they were, they weren't interested in speaking. So, I mean, right. sometimes you, you, you do, like you're saying with, with any interview, in an interview situation, you might nudge things. Sometimes you might nudge things. Uh, when you get a, a no, like I did with David Yip, who is another section of the book. David Yip is a is a British actor, the Chinese detective, the Chinese detective, and he was in uh, was it Temple of Doom. That's right. Yeah, India. he's uh, indie. It's the end of our adventure, indie. Yeah, he's he's a great great actor. I'm a huge fan. I'd love to have spoken to him. Anyway, the the for. If you've not read the book, the, the 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 story is that he was cast allegedly as a as another immortal in this film in a sequence that was actually ended up being cut from the film. And so someone said to me, "Oh yeah, and David Yip." Now I can't remember now if someone if I'd read that somewhere else or if someone told me in an interview. But anyway, the rumor is that David Yip was cast. So I tried to get in touch with David Yip for an interview to talk about this this scene, but his agent came back and said, "David," the 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 wording was something like David isn't doesn't want to talk about or David was not in the film something like that which is true he wasn't in the film but I was trying to uncover the fact did he actually was he actually approached to be in the film so I in the book mm -hmm. I kind of just uh, I try and just I just lay out what I know and theorize a little bit about was he was he um because one of the members of the team who was was doing the makeup is adamant that he was there on set with David Jip because he says that he he often used to get called the Chinese detective because he looked a little bit like David Yip. <laughs> so right, that right. feels to me quite a strong confirmation that David Yip was there. But then his his sort of David Yip's person said he wasn't in the film. And it's like, yeah, well, yes, I know he wasn't. But So that's a fascinating story, which I hope someone else maybe uncovers sometime. But I couldn't get an interview with David Yip, so I tried one of the appeals of the film, I think, I mean, like, I remember when I saw it and I was 14, I thought it was one of the best films I'd ever seen. And I thought it was like, oh, it's it's so well directed. It's so. And then, like, as I got older and I matured a bit and I, I went back and watched it again, I thought, 
oh my God, how did I ever like this? It's so over-directed. It's so over the top. And, and it's just like a, a swinging pendulum. And now when I rewatched it after reading your book, I watched it, I thought, this is so much fun. And even the stuff that I, you know, in my sort of maturity felt, uh, I do, sorry, I just use scare quotes for, for the listeners. In my maturity, <laughs> I thought didn't work. You know, Christoph Lambert's accent and all that sort of stuff. I just find so that it's part of the the fun of it, you know. How, mm-hmm. For instance, there's one quote that I use all the time, which is, uh, "You talk funny, Nash. Where you from?" And he and in my head, he replies, "Lots of different places." <laughs> but of course, <laughs> if you're rewatching the film, he just says lots of different places in a relatively normal accent. But in my head, it's so. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it's a fu- it's a funny film, isn't it? And, and more in in you know, funny, peculiar, and just funny, ha ha. And it, it it's um it's very self aware, and I think that's part of the that's partly what makes it it work because it's such a ludicrous idea that if they were to just do it deadly serious, then I yeah I just don't think it would work as well. And uh, and and it is, and I think I mean I can't speak for every fan, of course, but I I feel a lot of fans see the flaws know that it's ludicrous, know that the special effects are are off their time, know that the accents are... It's just an ongoing joke with the accents and <laughs> the whole, sh- yeah, you know, different actors Hag- playing... Haggish. Play the- <laughs> yeah. It's, it's all... It's all... It's a bonkers film. And, and I actually said to Russell Mackay, it's, it shouldn't work, but it does. Yeah. And he, he laughed at that and said, yeah, that should be on the poster. Uh, it, it just it it it, sh- it shouldn't work, uh, but it does. Yeah, it's it's just a cr- it's a crazy film. So I think the, that's the beauty of it, and that a lot of fans or most fans probably just you just have to embrace the the craziness and uh, and go with it. And I said, well, no, I don't know. I was just going to say something along the lines of, sort of like we were talking about earlier about does every film deserve a book written about it? I don't know. I, I, I'm asking myself that question. I don't actually know the answer, but but I think. There's something about, in many ways, I think they do actually, because unless it's just a really boring film that, maybe even boring films deserve it, but but I just think it is a fascinating. It's just fascinating to to sort of explore even films that are. I suppose some people have said to me, and they're quite honest and open about the fact that they do not like Highlander and they just think it's rubbish. And actually, I agree with them. <laughs> in a way, it is rubbish, but at the same time, it's amazing and it's it's genius. So I, I don't know. There's just something about this film. It's I'm not quite answering that other question really about should every film be have a book made, but but it's just saying if enough people love it. If there's an interesting story there, then I think people... I, I, there's so many books that I see coming out that uh, that I would never think I want to read. Mm. And then I think, actually, yeah, that's a brilliant idea. There's a book that came out recently uh, about... I'm a big Doctor Who fan, and there's a book that came out about... Uh, I don't know if you are, if you know the kind of history of Doctor Who, but but really there was a period when it was, was not on the television. And someone has written a book just recently about the period from, I think it's two... Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 1997 or 8, up until 2003, <laughs> when, right. when the series had had the, a TV movie made in America and then had come back or had been commissioned again by the BBC in 2003 and that's a period of time which I'd read a lot about and I didn't think I needed to read any more and then it was announced this book was coming out interviewing all the people that were there and I thought that sounds amazing and I've just finished reading it and it's fantastic uh, but it's funny isn't it that people can if you can find just this interesting approach to something and make it readable then then brilliant that's a skill yeah my uh reaction because I was I'm obviously for the podcast as well. I'm looking at a lot of books and I'm reading a lot of things. And so on my Amazon page, it came like recommended reads. It came up your book on Highlander. And I just thought, oh, oh yeah, I've got to read that. I've got to read that. <laughs> it, it was a, it was a slam dunk and it was kind of, um, oh, that's good. it kind of made me think, wow, hasn't somebody already done this in the sense that, uh, you know, it, 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 it felt like such a good idea that I, it kind of surprised me that it had taken this long to to mm. to have that sort of oral history approach that you've done and and it's so good that you've sort of conserved that because as you say you know in a, in a couple more decades there might not be anybody left to tell those stories absolutely yeah well i i yeah thank you for that and it's i agree yeah when, when i did tremors uh within maybe a year or so of of it being published uh, at least three people had had died that I spoke to. Um, one of whom, Marcia um, Strassman, who was in the Trevor's TV series, just was a lovely person to speak to. As well as just talking about Tremors, she just had an amazing career in um, in American TV, and uh, she was in things like Mash and Welcome Back, Cotter, and lots of different things. And she loved British television. I'm going off on a tangent here, but but mm. she loved British TV. And at that time, Peter Capaldi was the doctor. And she was talk talking about loving Peter Capaldi as well as being slightly, finding it slightly odd that so many British actors were going over to America and, and doing so well. And just, yeah, so it's that's a whole other chat, really, about people you interview, I think, and people that you mm. bond with. But but she did say at the end of the call, oh, you know, please you know, call back sometime and it'd be great to have a chat. And I didn't because... Why, of course, I wouldn't be thinking, oh, well, maybe she'll she'll die in the next year. And she did. And I, I'm uh, at the time, I was sad about that. I only spoke to her for an hour. Mm. But it's just sometimes you bond with people. And and I just think, oh, that was so sad. I wish I'd spoken to her more. But I think if you have like a, I mean, obviously, it depends on the uh, levels of stardom and levels of busyness and people who are working a lot at the moment. I don't have much time to talk about things in the past and everything else. But people who have put work into something, I find that they are really keen to talk about it. And, you know, it's that's why people become actors, people become writers and directors. They they do it for the work. And so if, if they find people who are interested and are 
sort of keeping the, f- the flame alive, so to speak. I find a lot of people are very, are very open to that. Uh, yeah, and I think I've been very lucky. I benefited from that, of course, doing these books. And because I've never, uh, people listening to this may or may not know that the way interviews tend to happen most of the time is that the person doing the interviewing tends not to pay for interviews. I, I think that sometimes I've spoken to people about what I'm doing and they're surprised to hear that mm. or, or the fact that Kevin Bacon might give up half an hour or Chris Lambert an hour and a half to talk about their work. And these are famous people that we see on the TV and we've got to pay to watch their films. I think sometimes people think, oh, do you, do you pay them? Do you, how much? And no, I mean, I think only one person ever that I can think of asked to be paid and uh, nothing to do with these books, but and and it didn't happen. But yeah, no, note to journalists: never never pay anybody for an interview. I mean, sometimes people don't want to talk, and it is about time. I think. Mm. I think most of the time, sometimes it's just very difficult to find people, and I'll email somebody, and it just bounces back because the email doesn't exist anymore. Or sometimes it's just impossible to track somebody down. Mm, sometimes they'll come back and yeah they are busy they're maybe filming something and then sometimes you forget that you emailed them and then that interview just doesn't happen so there are reasons why they don't happen but but yeah i would say 99 percent of the time if 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 i get through to somebody they say yes and and i'm very lucky and and i hope i do them justice as well of course that's the other thing you just want to do them justice and and um make sure their story is told the way they told you Having rewatched the film, sort of for you know, you've been you've must have watched the film over and over again when you were writing the book. Yeah, what what yeah. sort of stuff sort of stood out and survived for you? And you know, was there anything that you sort of learned in that process uh, that made you appreciate the film in a diff- different way from before? Hmm. Well, I think the thing I suppose that 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 probably stuck with me that probably appealed to me about the film the first time I saw it but I didn't really appreciate that that's what it was was the 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 human the love story at the center of it and I because when I went to see that film I can't remember exactly what I was thinking at the time but but I was going to see the, the crow which is kind of an action fantasy film and Highlander is is basically that and it's fighting and it's people killing each other and um, although it's not time travel it takes place in different time periods and and it's adventure. So I sort of, I think I thought <laughs> that, that what I loved about it was that, and that's what maybe kept me interested. But while I watched it again and again, what I realised was it's actually, for me anyway, the love story at the heart of it. And this, uh, and I suppose it is a timeless love story in, in a way. Uh, and it is a bit cheesy, of course it is. And we've said already it's a little bit of a cheesy film and it's it's not perfect. But there's just something about that that romance between Connor McLeod and uh, Heather, his wife. Um, and it sounds a bit a bit strange saying it in a way, but but there's just something magical about that and special that um, that grounds the film. I think I maybe say that in the book, but it grounds it in in some sort of reality that we can recognise as as human beings because we've all hopefully well certainly experienced some sort of uh, you know relationship or, or love. Uh, and then, of course, there comes the tragedy at some point, inevitably, which none of us really want to think about. But poor Connor has had to deal with this for hundreds of years. He's had this. I'm getting a bit emotional just thinking about it now. But you know, poor Connor. 
Uh, and that amazing song as well. There's that amazing song and the music with Michael Kamen brilliantly utilizes. And I disagree with um, Roger Taylor. I think uh, I think it's brilliantly orchestrated that song. I think it's really. I agree. Uh, I agree. And so that so that was the thing anyway. I suppose that that just was hammered home every time I watched it was just that 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 romance and just how well Christopher Lambert does with it even though he is fighting against the accent thing, you know, trying to trying to do his best with English. I think he does well with his English, or his, his Scottish, I suppose. But And what else? Um, maybe just Russell Mackay's direction, More, watching that again and again and, and having to think about it for when I spoke to him. You just realise what he was bringing to it and, and the fact that he was fighting... Was he fighting? I don't know if he was... He was sort of fighting against old-school British film industry guys who were coming to it with this, we don't have rain inside and we don't have hubcaps going past and we don't film from four different angles in the same scene. Uh, so so I guess Russell is the other thing in a way that, that really just became a bit more... But because he's in the film, that's the th- well, he's in it literally. Actually, he's in a couple of scenes as a cameo. But he's also in the film because he's he is his talent, his skill, his his is infused through that film. Of course, it's a Russell Mulcahy film. It looks like one of his music videos. Uh, so, which, which cameo does he play? Well, he's in it. If you, next time you watch it, when the Kurgan is is driving down the street with Brenda in New York, there's a scene where he he mounts the pavement. And he knocks yeah. two people over, and one of them is Russell Mulcahy, just a brief second. And there's another scene when he, when Brenda goes to the library, uh, again in New York. And just as that scene starts, the camera sort of pan, uh, pans in, and on the, I think it's the right hand side, there's a, a curly haired blonde man, and that's Russell just standing there. So things like that, I suppose, watching it over and over, I noticed these things, which I had never really noticed. So. That's the beauty of rewatching films over and over and over and over again, is that you do you do see things and then you can say to him, "Did I see you getting hit by a car in that film?" Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was he the first kind of of that sort of music video generation to to then make a film? Because I know afterwards we had people like well we had big directors like Martin Scorsese doing a Mike John Landis doing a Michael Jackson and uh, I think Scorsese did a, a Michael Jackson and we had David Fincher who did Madonna and then then you know was back and forth between music videos and movies but I wonder if M- M- Mulcahy was like the first of that generation well someone will probably correct us or correct me if I say yes, he was, but he was very much very close to it. I know Steve Barron was another music video director who had, who did a few films. I spoke to him for something else, and I, I can't remember what film it was, but that he had made it because I wasn't interviewing him about that. But yes, he was certainly one of one of the first, and certainly Russell's. I mean, I just, it's just there was so so many interesting things to get into this book about. Certainly his MTV story, which I I loved writing about the fact that his video was the first video on MTV. And that's just a brilliant fact for something like this, isn't it? To, to, to have that up your sleeve. It's like, did you know the guy who directed this film, he was he was the guy that did the Buggles <laughs> video killed the radio star. And I was also just lucky about things like uh, Live Aid happening. At the same time, they were filming Highlander. One of the, 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 the people I spoke to went home and watched Live Aid on the telly. And Queen were on... Live Aid, and then ended up doing Highlander. So there's there's these kind of nice little connections, which I was 
which made it more interesting for me to write as well because I had to try and work out how to how to because I think entering entering a chapter I mentioned there about little have, trying to have little cliffhangers I think also entering a chapter is, is a challenge as well and a nice it's a fun challenge because you don't want everyone to be to just come in and say and then next this is what happened so I hope I got it right I mean I, I, like all these things you're 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 just doing it yourself and you're hoping for the best and I did have a the publisher was sort of, was kind of my editor, but never gave me any. And I had some friends read it as well, um, just to mention in passing, some friends read the book and gave me some amazing feedback on it. But but yeah, so lots, I've gone off on a slight tangent again, but uh, but yeah, it's it's easy to do when, I, when you start talking about these things, because it was just such a fun thing to work on. These are, it's it's fun to do with all these amazing, and, and, it, and it wouldn't be the same if people didn't speak to you about it, if people didn't you know, do the interviews. I think I've read many books, I'm sure you have more than me, because you, you do this podcast. Uh, and you can, of course, write a book about a film without interviewing people that were there. And you can use old interviews, or you can just put your own thoughts about a film into a book. And that's all perfectly valid but a lot of the time that can be quite dry. Not every time, of course. But And so I, I was just very lucky. I was just coming back once again. I was so lucky that people wanted to speak to me and that they, they could... Because it's their story. All I'm doing is joining the dots, really. Um, in a way, I'm just... That's kind of what I'm doing is just trying to make it hopefully interesting for you to keep reading to get to the next person that tells an interesting story. And also just trying to be careful not to maybe overwhelm people with just quotes although I think this maybe the next book I do is going to be more more of an oral history where I give more space over to them with with paragraphs of quotes rather than just me chopping them up a little bit so Nicholas Pelagi's Wise Guys which was filmed as Goodfellas is a is a brilliant example of how you can write an entire book which is entirely made up of of quotations entirely and and yet it, it reads like a novel that thing flies mm. that's such a great book I, I one of the one of the greatest experiences in the cinema was watching the first Highlander. One of the worst experiences in the cinema was watching Highlander Two, which I remember the cinema was absolutely packed. I don't know how Highlander had become this sort of popular thing that everybody in Barrow Inferno suddenly wanted to go and see Highlander Two, <laughs> the quickity. But the 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 thing was the cinema was packed for some reason. I can't remember the details. My girlfriend uh, and her mum came along, and I, really? yeah, I am, <laughs> and yeah, the, my girlfriend coming along, I totally understand. I'm not sure why her mum came along, <laughs> and I think it might have been me. I've got a feeling it was me going, "Oh, this is so good! You'll love it. This oh, is such a good dear. thing." And we, yeah. oh man, and I think that was the first film I ever really. No, it can't have been, but it was one of those, you know, when you go to the cinema when you, you're a kid and you love everything you see. And then at one point you go and you sit and you're watching a film and you're thinking, is this, is this bad? Is this a bad mm -hmm. film? I mean, does mm -hmm. such a thing even exist? But boy, that was a, that was a stinker. Yes. That's, I mean, that, that's something when I, when I started writing, I, I just decided probably day one really was before day one was uh, don't, I'm not going to cover the sequels um, because yes, it's not, uh, there are many fans. I know people now, who I've met since writing the book. I know people who love Highlander 2 and and I've tried to watch, I have watched it since, uh, while writing the book and, and since writing it and I've tried again and again and I just can't, I just don't enjoy it. I'm the same as you, it's, but I can see that some people do. But, um, but no, I thought, what's the point in putting myself through pain watching things that I don't <laughs> enjoy? Because who's, who's, 
uh, there's there's probably something in people talk these days about hate watching a TV show mm. and you watch it and then you slag it off on Twitter. Um, that's fine, I suppose. I mean, it can be fun, but not having to write chapters and chapters about something. So, so yeah, um, I made a decision early on, just just focus on the first film. And I have seen all the... Se- well, no, there's one one of the, <laughs> the films I've still not finished. I think it's called The Source, Highlander The Source. Right. Which is number five, maybe? Yeah. Uh, which nobody really talks about, but but no, and I, I, people. I, so, but I do dedicate a, cha- a chapter trying to talk about what happened next. And I was very lucky once again to get an interview with somebody who was involved in Highlander Two. One of the, I think he was one of the producers and, and helped with the funding. Um, who just gave gave some time to talk about that. So I think that's something else that fans have maybe not heard before. But but yeah, I wasn't going to spend my time. Life's too hate, short. Hate watching, hate writing. Who, who, who wants to do that? It's... <laughs> hate writing is, is <laughs> going way too far. Dedicating a month or two of your life to write a chapter about it is way too much. Definitely, yeah. But people have asked me, people have, many people have asked me on Twitter and, and on Facebook or whatever, saying, when, when are you writing a book on, on Highlander 2? <sighs> Probably never is the answer, unless someone pays me lots and lots of money. <laughs> I'd say definitely never. I think that. I think I, even that probably. If somebody offers me loads of money, that's not going to happen. I would read it though, because I think there there is definitely an interesting story there. But I do sort of think that now the both producers are are dead. Um, one one of the the sort of remaining producers sadly died recently this year after the book had come out. Mm, and I didn't get to speak to him for this book, so so it's not like that really affected this book. But I think he has lots of stories to tell. But I don't know. Anyway, no, I would read. I would read it because I think it's an interesting tale. But um, I think something like Highlander three or four is going too far. I don't know if I would read those books, but we shall see. You make the point that doesn't doesn't three three get better? And I mean, I haven't seen anything after one and two. I haven't seen the TV series either, which again was, I mean, you make a point in the book. I think somebody you, you interview says this, that the even the first film wasn't commercially a huge success. And so why it spawned so many sequels and so many TV shows and things like that is kind of a little bit of a mystery. Yeah, that that was the the chap that I spoke to. I'm trying to remember his name. It's gone out of my head, I'm afraid. But he was the the kind of producer on the TV series, one of the producers on the TV series, and helped with the sequels. And yeah, he makes that point and just says, "I don't really understand what was what was happening <laughs> because the first film didn't make a lot of money at the box office. It, it succeeded on video, and the sequels never did that well at the cinema and yet they kept making them so there was clearly lots of money being made on VHS and DVD uh, and it was Christopher Lambert I think who said the third one he felt guilty going to press launches and things for the second one he said to people don't go and see Highlander 2 if you think it's a sequel to Highlander because it isn't and of course people were saying to him but it is because it's called Highlander 2 and he's like yeah but it's not really so, and he was getting told off by the producer and the PR people. He said, you can't say that. You can't say, don't go and see it. Uh, and he thinks Highlander 3 is the proper sequel. And he's probably right, but even Highlander 3 is not that brilliant. But there will be fans who think it's better than, it's their favourite, I'm sure. Every film is somebody's favourite film. Absolutely. There's somebody somewhere who loves every single film. So Definitely. And that's great. Yeah, exactly. To, to be celebrated, it's the, it's the weave and woof of the rich tapestry we call life. 
That's what, Absolutely. That's what I think anyway. Um, <laughs> but there is occasionally, there are occasionally rumors about a potential sort of reboot, right? Yeah, well, since since I wrote the book, the rumor is it, it's sort of what's the term solidified? Can a rumor be solid? I'm not sure, but it but it sort of appears that it's actually going to happen now. Although anything could happen. I mean, what the the problem with the the reboot, the the both the the positive and the negative, is it Chad Stahelski who directs the John Wick films, loves mm. Highlander, and Chad wants to bring back Highlander. That's fantastic, and I think he'll do amazing things. Uh, yeah, you know, the, the, the look, whatever you think of, of the John Wick films, I think if you watch them, uh, you have to appreciate the um, the style that he's got when it comes to, to, to gunplay, which, which sounds a bit odd to say, in, in, in a, certainly in this country where we don't really like guns but as a as a film as a as a fiction as a fantasy world he does amazing things with with gunplay so i think what he could do with with swordplay i just i think it could be incredible so yeah so brilliant he wants to do it but the downside is the john wick films are so huge that lionsgate i think it is that produced them just want more of them so chad keeps having to make new ones and i i don't know chad so i've not spoken to him i'm sure he He's happy with that, and and certainly the money wise, it must be incredible. But I wonder if creatively, it's a little bit. Uh, it means he can't really move on to other things. So Highlander is sort of stuck in a in this weird place where it was recently announced that Henry Cavill is going to be Connor in the reboot. So that's something big. They've actually announced something which hasn't happened before. But um, but I believe, I think the new John Wick is anyway. It's not. We're not talking about John Wick, but so yes, I think it will. I think it will happen. Fingers crossed. Mm. Certainly, it's the closest it's ever been, and I, and I think the right people are probably involved in it because just from what I've seen of their work and Henry Cavill, I watched the first episode of The Witcher recently, which is on Netflix, and I watched it after he was announced. And what he does, what Henry Cavill does with with swords and that is incredible as well. Just the fight sequences and the, and the you know the the way that those are put together. So. Could be a could be a match made in heaven, and I know I, I sort of know a little bit the guys at Davis Panzer who produced the original Highlander, and I really only got to know them after the book came out. And they, I know that they are very they're committed to just this being the best film. You know they they they're they're loyal to the fans. They want this mm. to be uh, for for fans of the original film. They want to want to respect them, but also they appreciate that there needs to be a whole new audience that. Um, that comes to it and people that have never heard of it before. Um, so I think that's the that's the battle, really, isn't it? It's trying to... You, you don't have to appeal to the old fans because I think there are a lot of them, but I think if every Highlander fan went to the cinema to see <laughs> the new Highlander film, that wouldn't be a blockbuster. That would yeah. just be... It would do quite well on the opening night because there are not millions... Of, there are millions of people who like Highlander if, they, if it's on the telly, but a card-carrying Highlander fan, there probably aren't millions who would... But well, millions have not bought my book, so that <laughs> uh, maybe they maybe they will. But uh, yeah, after this podcast, they will. Of course, they will. So so anyway, yes, I think I think the film will. I, I like to think it'll happen. It's certainly closer than it's ever been, and it's absolutely fine if it does because the original is always there, and we can always just put on the Blu-ray or, or stream it off Amazon or whatever or whatever. Also, the the very concept itself is so elastic in the sense that you have literally the entirety of sort of history. I mean, 
I, I guess you have to keep Connor McLeod because then it wouldn't be Highlander. It wouldn't be, you know, you have to have that root in the sort of, in that character. But from that point in history and geography until the present day, you could literally, you know, you could even put it into the future if you wanted to, you know, because of the nature yeah. of the, the concept, the, the immortals, you know. Totally. And, and, and I do mention the book and spoke to Christopher Lambert about it, uh, about, I, I think, think that there should i'd love to see it as a netflix series actually or right. amazon or whoever just because of exactly what you said there's this huge canvas which you can you can build this world uh and so many different characters which you can take from the film re reinvent re them um who all have their amazing backstories and all these other immortals that we've never seen so yeah, you could have multiple seasons. You could have spin-offs. You could have everything. So I, I, I hope there's a. I'd like to go and see the film, of course, and I'm, I'm sure it'll be great. But it's a universe, really. Like John Wick, actually. They're, I know that go back to John Wick that they are doing a prequel TV series, and they're talking about doing a, a spin-off film with Anna de Armas, which would be amazing, based on what she did in No Time to Die. But I think with Highlander. It feels like just common sense that you would say, okay, we'll do this first film. I think the original plan was to do it as a trilogy of, of Highlander films. But the idea of having a spin-off series and, and novels and podcasts, it's just, it feels like a no-brainer, really. Brilliant. And then everybody will buy your book, obviously, because it'll be seen as a foundational text. <laughs> Of course, millions, millions will buy it. <laughs> the Bible of Highlander, they'll call it. Um, listen, yeah. we, uh, Jonathan, uh, one last question, which is, um, what film book would you recommend for our listeners? The book that I, well, there's quite a few. I've already mentioned a few today. One which I would recommend is uh, the book on Don Simpson, which I think is the D Don Simpson and the Culture of Hollywood Excess. Is that what it's called? I wish I'd double-checked it before I, I came on. But but I think that's what it's called, which came out quite a while ago now, maybe 15, 20 years ago. And as it sounds, it's about Don Simpson, the, the it's, Hollywood it's producer. Called, it's called High Concept, Don Simpson and the Hollywood Culture of Excess. So you got the... I was half halfish, right? Yeah. You got the the sort of sub. The, you got the after the colon. Yes. <laughs> uh, and that one... Um, now, I've not read it for a long time, actually, but the, when you said that... It, it, that's the one that came to mind because it's the one that's always stuck with me through the years. Just some of the amazing stories. As someone who's a fan of of um, of all these amazing Hollywood, these blockbusters like um, <clears throat> excuse me, like Top Gun and um, you know the, the Con Air and The Rock and all these these films that, um, that I know Don Simpson didn't didn't work on. I think he died by. Was it Conair or The Rock? But but anyway, he worked on all these amazing blockbusters, and just the story, the stories that they tell in that in that book are fantastic, and they stuck with me ever since. I just remember one, I think it was on the set of Days of Thunder, where Don had had taken a little bit too much uh, cocaine, I think it was, and he, I'm sure he rips the door off the, what is it called, the trailer, yeah, that, that Tom Cruise is in, I think, rips it, just literally rips it off, and th things like that stuck in my mind. And it's just a just a great insight into the insanity of Hollywood and these brilliant blockbusters that we all that I certainly loved. I mean, back in the nineties, I just remember going to see things like uh, the well, I'll say again, The Rock and, and Con Air and, and Face Off and all these sorts of things. It was just that brilliant time. I miss I miss those nineties action films. We've we've 
I know we've got great things now, but Marvel has sort of taken over. And that's a, I know that's another discussion, but I'd love to read more about those. What are you saying about Marvel? Quick, quick. This will be the Love Marvel. Love Marvel. (laughs) But I'll sell this interview one. Oh dear. But, but no, that's, yeah, that, that book, please read it if you've not. And even like, like you said about my book, kindly, you don't have to like Highlander to read the book. I think if you want to know about the film industry, Exactly the same with that one on Don Simpson. You don't have to be a fan of uh, of Days of Thunder. <laughs> I'm sure there are lots of fans of that, but but just read it. It's just a fascinating, yeah. Same guys who like Highlander too. Uh, <laughs> <huge> <laughs> Days of Thunder heads. Although I I think Days of Thunder. I've, I have heard people a little bit like Miami Vice recently. It's sort of become a a little bit of a hipster choice of like no, actually, mm. it's better than Tom Gun. Yeah, I think one of the things about those 90s action movies is they were kind of all one-offs. They were like, I mean, I know they're going to make a Top Gun sequel now, but throughout the 80s, you know, they made uh, 80s, 90s. They kind of did one and done. I'm trying to think, well, there's, mm. there were a couple, well, Rambo and Rocky and those things were franchises. And so was one last one was uh, Beverly Hills Cop. But you know, face off. You didn't get a face off two. You you didn't get a Con Air two. You didn't get a Rock two. That those are quite major sort of action movies, which were potentially franchisable, as as franchisable as Die Hard, which did get a, a franchise, of course. Absolutely, I think Jerry Bruckheimer did. Did he do Bad Boys? I think. That's I'm right, not sure yeah. Don. I'm not sure Don Simpson was on that one as well. And of course, there were a couple of sequels to that. But but no, you're right. Absolutely, most of them. They were kind of one and done, and uh, and I've always I've long wanted to see Conair too, but I but at the same time I don't want to see Conair too because I'm sure it'd be absolutely terrible, and the first one is just great, it's just just fun, just literally what people talk about popcorn movies. Yeah, I remember going to see those yeah. films. I remember going to see actually Die Hard with a Vengeance, this, the Odeon Cinema here in Edinburgh on the night of Sean Connery's birthday. I think it was his, it might have been his sixtieth birthday, and just I remember this is just a, an aside really, but his brother. Um, was holding a party for Sean Connery in the cinema, but Sean Connery wasn't there, but they were having a birthday right. party. That, that's just a bizarre memory that I have. And Sean Connery's brother used to live around the corner from me when I was writing the Highlander book. Um, sadly, he died just um, maybe six months ago or, or so. But I did mention him in passing while walking to the bus stop once. I'm writing a book on Highlander just to see what he would say. And he didn't really show much interest in it, <laughs> sadly. I, I sort of, I think I half thought maybe he would say, oh, I'll just get you Sean's email, but uh, he never did. Um, you've got to try, man. You've got to, you've got to <laughs> give it a go. Exactly. Yeah, I don't think Sean had an email. No, no. He had people people who did emails. Listen, Jonathan, it's been wonderful talking to you, and thanks so much for giving me an opportunity to relive my childhood passion and then and then rediscover it anew. It's not it's giving uh, giving me license to like it again. No, I saw you on Twitter. You were you've been watching it, and uh, yeah, it's it's just it's just well, we've spoken about it so many. We've said a lot about it, haven't we? But it's it's still just great fun to watch, I think. And there are so many moments. As I was watching yeah. it, I was like, feel the stag, you know, and I was doing all yeah. the, you know, muttering a lot, even, you know, of course you are when the, the, the <laughs> prostitute comes in and candy, yeah. Yeah, I actually just to say I the, I did one of the people I couldn't get was the interview was the woman who did the, the choreography. Oh, Bizarrely, really? there was choreography for that scene with 
uh, Clancy and the sword when he's putting the sword together and he sort of runs it along his arms. I thought, oh, her name's gone out of my head now, but she was the um, she was a, a judge on Strictly Strictly Come Dancing here in the UK for, for a few years. How the mighty have fallen. Yeah, but she didn't email me back. So, yeah, sometimes it happens. I don't know what she would have said, really, because it must have been a few hours, but <laughs> one... I think she was a friend of Russell Mulcahy. I seem to remember reading that somewhere, but... Yeah, it sounds like maybe from the pop from the pop industry, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. She's very famous, but her name has just gone right out of my head, so... But uh, but no, I'm glad you I'm glad you enjoyed it. Of course, that's that's brilliant, and uh, it's been it's been fascinating, fun to talk about it. Thank you. So that was my conversation with Jonathan Melville. His book, Kind of Magic, Making the Original Highlander, and it's a really, it's a really great read. I recommend it for anybody who has even a passing interest in the film. His recommended book was High Concept: Don Simpson and the Hollywood Culture of Excess. So you can uh, pick that up as well, and um, maybe I'll see if I can get Charles Fleming, the author, on the podcast as a guest in the future. Okay, all that's left is for me to thank Elliot Atkins for the music, Ali Harwood for the art. And until the next episode, take care. you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.